0: Welcome to the Indoor Environment Show. Uh, I'm Bob Krell. I'm the founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine. And uh, I'm uh, joined today by my co-host, as always, Don Weeks, who is the president of the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IEQGA. Hey, Don, how are you?
1: Yes, hi. How are you? It's been a while, and it's good to see you today. And we have some really uh, terrific guests. I'm looking forward to having the conversation today.
0: Yeah, well, and and things are going well in your world here. It's our, our first show of 2022.
1: Yeah, you know um, we're uh, we're 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 hanging in there. You know, trying to get uh, get through the pan- uh, the pandemic, but uh, everything's good at the moment. I I hope that that's the case with you too.
0: Yeah, I mean we're both in the North Country, so we're we're feeling that feeling the Arctic blast here. You know, there's, there's nothing really fun in January. Uh, today's show, though, is I think is really a great show to start out the uh, this new year with. Um, topic is very timely, and uh, so I'm looking forward to it. So uh, without further ado, let's bring our guests in, and Don, you can do the introductions.
1: So our first guest is uh, Dr. William uh, Bonfleck, who is a professor of architectural engineer at Penn State University and a past director of the Indoor Environmental Center at Penn State. He holds BS, MS, and PhD degrees in mechanical engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana Urbana Champlain and is a registered professional engineer. Dr. Bonfleck is a fellow of ASHRAE, ASME, and ISIAC. He's a vice president of IEQGA and a past president of ASHRAE. Dr. Bonfleck organized and serves as chair of the ASHRAE Epidemic Task Force. He's a member of the ASHRAE Environmental Health Committee and a committee's writing position documents on indoor uh, carbon dioxide and infectious aerosols. So, welcome, Bill.
2: Thanks, Don. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, and our second guest is Dr. Marwa Zartari, who is a partner in Design Partners based in Austin, Texas. Dr. Sattari has a PhD in Environmental and Water Resources Engineering from the University of Texas at Austin in the Architectural and Civil Engineering Department. She also has an MS in Projects in, in the Built Environment from the American University of Beirut and a BE in HVAC Energy and Controls for the Mechanical Engineering Department of the Lebanese University in Lebanon. Welcome, Amarwa.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, before yes. we go any further, I think I'd like to stress that this show is a uh, joint uh, collaborative effort between the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, ISIAC, and the Indoor Environmental Quality <clears throat> Global Alliance, (IEQGA) in partnership with Healthy Indoors, to bring you this show.
1: And yes, and today's <laughs> uh, webcast is, is sponsored by IEQGA and its member organization, ASHRAE, with financial support from Skidmore, Owens, and Mer- Merrill. So with no further ado, no ad- why don't we get started? So Bill, we'll, we'll I'll let you throw lead you. Off. Yeah, I'm going to lead off with the first question for Bill, which is uh, your education. Obviously, is, as we were just describing, is primarily in mechanical engineering from Illinois University of Ur- Urbana-Champaign. How did you become interested in indoor air quality?
2: Uh, well, that's an interesting question, at least uh, for me. You know, I, I started out like most mechanical engineers who were educated in the <clears throat> 1970s and 80s being focused on energy efficiency which was a big deal at that time Um, but i came to penn state in 1994 and uh, one of my first doctoral students was a guy named wally kowalski and he had come from the nuclear industry where he'd been working for years to get a phd and he had read about the the growing risk from uh, infectious diseases and felt that there was uh, a pandemic coming and he wanted to do something about it so he came to Penn state and wanted to study methods of controlling uh, infection risk and and he eventually uh, focused on uh, ultraviolet air disinfection which is now something I've been working on for uh, for 25 years but so shortly after that we had the anthrax mailings in 2000 and uh, one that uh, created more interest in controlling bioaerosols. And I went on sabbatical and that was where I decided I was going to redirect to IAQ and and form the indoor environment center that you mentioned. And uh, so over basically a period of five years, I switched from being a typical energy focused uh, engineer to deciding the rest of my career was gonna be mainly about indoor air quality.
1: No, that yeah i think that a lot of people have made that switch over the years but you were not one of the first so that's that's good good uh, background thank you uh marwa my question for you is somewhat similar your education prior to university of texas was uh in mechanical engineering and engineering management but you changed a bit when you went to the university of texas to go into environmental and water resources engineering and also your phd dissertation dissertation was about pollution controls uh, how did you become interested in uh, in, in uh, indoor air quality? Uh,
3: so like Bill, I started uh, uh, being interested in energy. And as long as I remember, actually, when I was a child, I was really interested in the idea of energy conservation. I grew up in Lebanon, and we didn't have electricity. Unfortunately, we still do not have electricity. So, um, but, but for a long time, I really wanted to um, do something to help uh Fix the energy, the energy problem. So uh, in Lebanon, I joined the mechanical engineering department and focus on uh, the HVAC, um, heating, ventilation, air conditioning system. I knew that it had you know a big role to play in the energy conservation. And then during my masters, I focus on energy and controls, and I, I start to read about the sick building syndrome. I start to read about you know uh, the downside or the unintended consequences of of doing you know a, a building with energy savings. Uh, we are building our building tight and that is impacting uh, basically people, p- people health. So I was so lucky to find a program at University of Texas at Austin. Uh, we had you know, these amazing professors, Dr. Jeffrey Segal, Richard Corsi, Dr. K- Kerry Kin- Kinney, Dr. Attila Novozalak. So I was really interested to pursue with them mm-hmm. this indoor air quality path and um, it seemed like I, I did a big movement, but actually my dissertation was focused on finding, um, uh, you know, exposure reduction strategies while at the same time uh, not wasting energy. So kind of the background blended between um, the intersection of, of indoor air quality and energy efficiency.
1: Yeah, I, I saw that in your paper there. That's a, a dissertation. So, Bob, you have a question? No, nope, nope. I was just uh, letting, you, letting you roll here and
0: uh, moving you around. No We've been problem. off air for a couple months. I know. (laughs) It's cold.
1: It's cold. Yes. Uh, Bill, back to you a little bit. Uh, One of your early um, 2000 publications entitled Effective UVGI System Design Through Improved Modeling. And uh, UVGI or ultraviolet germicidal irradiation systems have become more prevalent with COVID-19. And there's been a number of papers on, on that. Can you tell me uh, what your thoughts are about the use of U- U- UVGI systems as part of the methods used to reduce the airborne tr- transmission of the coronavirus?
2: Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> that's been uh, something I've been looking at for a, a long time, and of course, it's not a new technology. It was used uh, very effectively in some uh, trials in uh, schools by by Wells Wells and Wilder you know, from uh, uh, Penn. And um, I think it's a great technology that's underutilized. It tends to be viewed as being a, uh, a healthcare-specific technology, but it's been very effective in other settings as well. So um, I, I think uh, it's going to increase in use because of the attention that it's gotten during the pandemic. And there are also new technologies emerging like uh, uh, FarUVC that is safer for Human exposure that I think uh, that and LEDs are going to create uh, an even wider spectrum of applications uh, for its use.
0: I mean, do you think it makes uh, the application of using it in HVAC versus using it in just the ambient environments? Uh, you know, which is more appropriate way to use UV uh, UVs, UV's uh, yeah. technology?
2: Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I think if you look at you know like a, a square meter cost for a system, you can you can Um, apply UV to larger areas um, cost effectively if you put into an air handling unit, but the clean air delivery rate you're going to get is limited to the airflow of of the system. I think one of the best applications in uh, an an HVAC system is keeping the coil clean. That's something else we've done research on. That's that's very effective. But if I was really concerned primarily about infection control, it's clear that um, what are currently called upper room uh, GUV systems, because we can't expose occupants to the uh, 254 nanometer UVC, are much more effective if we describe their performance in equivalent air changes per hour, 10, 20, 30 air changes per hour. So that, that's really phenomenal performance if you can get it. And, and uh, the big problem with, with it is uh, the cost, really, uh, per unit area.
0: And I'm assuming these are units that are effectively pulling air through with some type of fan device and uh, bring them through UVC, uh, you know, radiating them or, or just radiating um, a whole area. In the in
2: space, the space they are actually fixtures that may be open or louvered oh. to create a disinfection zone. And so they, they interact with the air circulation in the space to, to disinfect. And so I mean, that's one of the, the hard more convective, more convectively is what you're saying. Yeah, is, is knowing how how well they're going to perform because there is that coupling with a part of the system that you're not really designing to work with the UV.
1: Great. Thank you. I was wondering about that. So um, back to Mara for, uh, for the next question. I was wondering if you could give us some information uh, about the findings of, of this paper that you did back in 2013, the relationship between filter pressure drop, indoor air quality, and energy consumption in rooftop H- HVAC units.
3: Uh, Yeah, so we started the work in 2011 and it was uh, at that time, and it's ironic we still have the same uh, question during the pandemic, uh, is, you know, if you use a high efficiency filter, you're going to choke your system and you're going to have a high pressure drop, resistance to the airflow basically, and and as such, you're going to have large energy penalties. So at that time, 2011, we didn't have any study that did this for commercial buildings or to help to answer the question. Is it correct or or, or not? So what is the magnitude of impact on energy and indoor air quality? Um, So we set to uh, the study to answer the question. So what happened when you go from a MERV 8 low efficiency filter to a MERV, a higher MERV like 11, 13, 14? so what happened from uh, energy consumption, we focus on the fan power, the compressor power, the cooling capacity, and what happened from indoor air quality perspective. At that time, we, take, we took a look at you know, PM2.5 and PM10 um, so, this happened in tandem with another project that was funded by ASHRI. So, we had the opportunity to do two years of field testing. Uh, i spent two years on the roof in, uh, in Austin, Texas, and Pennsylvania. <laughs> it happened that the field work either happened in the summer in Austin or in the, uh, in the really the, the winter in, in Pennsylvania. But, but basically, uh, we did this f- field measurement, uh, it was very comprehensive. So, uh, we measured uh, fan pressure drop, uh, fan pressure rise, uh, filter pressure drop. Uh, the fan power, uh, we measured uh, outside air percentage, um, supply airflow, return air flow, uh, particulate matter of different sizes, indoors and outdoors. And then we did uh, modeling using data from the field to get the cooling capacity and then the compressor power. And then we had a database of 75 filters that are, you know, you can find on the market. Um, and then we also had a database of 15 filters that are fouled, So not only we answered the question for clean conditions of filters, but also for a small subset of them, what happened when they are felt? Um, so we'll share with you some of the results. Uh, the first one was a revelation for me, it that uh, MRF does not equal MERV. Uh, so today, if you tell me that you, know, you have a MRF 13 I wouldn't be able to tell approximately what is the pressure drop or what is the efficiency. And in fact, in, in my work, I, I showed that there's a weak relationship between uh, MERV and, and pressure drop. In other words, you can have um, a low efficiency filter that have a higher pressure drop than a high efficiency filter. Um, the other thing is that because the way uh, the standard standard fifty two point two ashri is set, it's a little bit uh, you know for the same MERV category, you can have a wide range of efficiency depending on the you know the particle distribution that you're dealing with. Um, so. Just jumping to the, to the finding is that, you know, if you, if you move from a MERV-8 to a MERV-11, you have a moderate energy consumption uh, and not so much increase in clean air delivery rate for the, the set that we had in particulate matter. But when you go from a MERV-8 to a MERV-13, uh, you have a, a moderate energy increase, around two to 3% increase in cooling capacity, but you have some like three times better clean air delivery in, in PM2.5. So that was really good to know. It's not true that you incur a large energy consumption and you have a small energy increase, but it's totally justified by the benefits you get, again, from PM2.5 perspective and more so from PM10. And just to end with this, it's the same for fouled condition. So at the end of the life of the filter when it's completely fouled, uh, although uh, the filters that we used, all of them, they increase in efficiency with time. As such, like MERV eight became MERV eleven, MERV thirteen became MERV fifteen, and the benefits difference between eight and thirteen diminish when the filter is fouled. So still, MERV thirteen offered advantages over MERV eight, but they were less than at clean at clean conditions. Um, And I'm happy to say that during the pandemic, we actually uh, expanded the database from seventy five filters to one hundred forty filters, and still the same findings. There is no correlation between pressure drop and and, and MERV. So just to end with this, you can actually have a high, high efficiency filter if you pick it correctly and you look at the sum of the standard data without incurring a large uh, energy penalty, basically.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, obviously a very critical part of what uh, people are looking at in buildings right now. They're trying to make a determination what is the best way to have energy efficiency and have uh, good indoor air quality as well. So sounds like an interesting uh, area to study right now. So thank you for uh, telling us about that.
0: So, hey, Don, I wanted to point out, we we do have quite a few uh, live uh, members in the audience on the online community today. And uh, we uh, have activated the live chat function uh, there. So if you're watching the show live from our community, uh, you can actually ask questions, post some questions for our guests today, both Bill and Marwa. be happy to entertain those. We'll uh, be moderating those uh, from afar uh, with Healthy Indoors editor Susan Valenti. She's uh, on the line with that.
1: Great. Thanks. That sounds great. So, Bill, um, I was going to ask you about the, your most recent publication that you had in the CV, which was Control of Inbor- in- Airborne Infectious Disease in Buildings, Evidence and Research Priorities. Can you give us a little idea of what the re- research priorities are going forward?
2: Uh, sure. Um, and, of course, that, that paper, the lead author was Jacob uh, Bueno de Mesquita, who some of the people who were listening may, may know. He's at uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and, and other authors were from... LBNL. Uh, I want to say that it's is uh, as an aside. It's the longest paper I think I've ever been involved in. It's 25,000 words, uh, and and over 300 uh, references are cited. So it's it's got a, a really uh, thorough literature review. But so at the end of all of that are, are the research priorities, and I think they're they're uh, defined uh, probably pretty concisely by the the knowledge gaps that are noted. I think there there are a lot of things that we don't Know about viral aerosols yet? Um, What is the uh, the shedding rate of of various pathogens that we're concerned about? Um, How do they distribute within the uh, the spectrum of uh, aerosol sizes? These are all important things in in terms of uh, control. Tomorrow was talking about um, mechanical filters and their efficiencies. It's important not only to know what the efficiency characteristics of the filter are, but what are the the particle size uh, characteristics of what you're trying to control. You need both to actually know how well it's going to perform. And I think there's a a related big uh, gap that needs to be filled by research on um, risk assessment. Uh, We're three years into uh, the COVID pandemic, and I don't think that we really have highly accurate Uh, ways of assessing what infection risk is. We're typically mostly focused still on uh, Wells-Riley airborne uh, transmission models, but we know that there's this close range transmission that uh, has other characteristics and um, that the uh, dose response characteristics of pathogens need to be known better so all of that will help us to determine what controls are necessary and so then if we move more into the, the engineering side of things we have certainly discovered recently that there's a lot that we don't know about almost any aspect of control that that uh, you could name you know, recent uh, literature reviews on ventilation ventilation rates and infection control say well we're we're it's clear that the uh, more ventilation reduces risk but we don't know enough about it to specify what the the uh, ventilation rate should be. And we've also clearly seen that lots of uh, air cleaners are, are not very well understood. Some of them, it's simply a matter of, of not uh, being able to specify their use uh, effectively enough. UV, like we were talking about, that's pretty well established in terms of its performance, but there are others where we're not sure that they work and we're not sure that they're safe. So there's a lot of uh, work that needs to be done done there and another area is uh, air distribution we have uh, also learned during the pandemic that uh, our understanding of how uh, say air flows that are created by the the HVAC system in a in a building interact with uh, in-room air cleaners and uh, and and on and on so there are, are many priorities that that go from the basic uh, science of of um, disease transmission to risk analysis in specific environments to the controls that, that we have and how we use them. So it's, it's a an agenda that will take a long time to uh, to work out.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it will. But I, I thought the paper was very well written, and it certainly outlined a whole bunch of things that uh, we do need to have as priorities going forward. So. Um, Mara, you had a publication in 2020 with Hoy Belhannon called "The Effect of Ventilation and Filtration on Viral Infection and Viral Infection in Residents." Can you give us some of the findings on, on that paper?
3: Yeah, so it was an article we wrote for the Ashri Journal uh, sometime in the fall of 2019, so early on. And at that time, uh, we were seeing, um, you know, the Ashri Epidemic Task Force had done. Uh, uh, I think a great job in publishing what we need to do for, uh, for our residents and how we can set up isolation rooms. But we still got a lot of questions. For example, like if you have an air cleaner where you put it with an infected person or in the rest of the house, is it better to invest in air cleaner or, uh, or it's better to basically up the efficiency of your filter? So we set this uh, basically study to uh, you know do some calculations uh, to calculate relative risk and to compare uh, different scenarios. We did it for a single um, uh, family unit and, for a, you know, mid-size uh, home. And we did multiple scenarios. If you know that uh, the person is infected or not, like what if you have a plumber that came to your house two hours and you don't know if he's infected or not, or friends. Or what happened if you have a family member that is infected and, and you put him in isolation room, per ASHRAE, basically, recommendation. Um, So we use the Wells Riley model. And um, as Bill mentioned just before me, there's a lot of uncertainty in in, in doing this. We use a a peer-reviewed tool specifically on COVID. So that's why we we set to do um, a relative risk. So set of absolute risk of infection, relative risk, just to compare the different strategies. And then each person can decide on, you know, a a cost effective way to do it in, in their home. So for example, uh, if, if you have a person who you know is infected and he's in, in, in this isolation room and you taped all the return diffusers and you have the bathroom fan on and you're doing everything correct basically, you have the, you know, the windows open, the bathroom fan on, uh, where you, it's, and you are a caregiver coming inside the room for a few minutes uh, to take care of this uh, infected person, give him medication, talk to him, give him food, etc. What is your risk? Um, and the first question is that if you have an air cleaner, do you put it next to this infected person or in the rest of the house? I heard a lot is that, you know, it's logical to clean inside the, outside the house because the person's already infected. Why we wanna clean the, his air or his or her air? Uh, it turned out in, in our calculation is that it's better, the most effective way to put the air cleaner next to the infected person. Uh, you decrease the risk by half. And if you both are wearing masks, uh, you know, decent, well-fitted mask, you decrease the risk as well by half. If you're doing both, you decrease it by by four times. Uh, so on and so so forth. So if you read the paper, there is uh, you know specific examples comparing air cleaner, portable air cleaner versus high efficiency filter in, in, in your system. Um, yeah, so it's specific to the scenarios we 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 chose, but you know it helped to answer some questions.
0: We have a few questions coming up in the community, so I'm going to jump one in right now okay. um, uh, regarding high pressure drop with high, uh, high filtration. Are you looking at recent tech for HEPA filtration membranes that have extremely low pressure drop?
3: Uh, no, uh, at that time and even during the uh, during the pandemic, in the database, I only have uh, from basically MERV seven to MERV fourteen, so I'm not looking at the, into the HEPA.
0: Okay.
1: All right, so I have a question for both of you, and this regards to the, uh, the uh, ashray Epidemic Task Force. Obviously, um, you're both members, and, and Bill, you're the the chair. Uh, what do you, th- in your opinion, has been the task force most important accomplishment to date? And either one of you can start off.
2: Uh, sure, well, I, I actually came up with, with maybe three things that I think are important. One is that we got a fast start, you know, it took, uh, over a year for public health authorities and then governments that were following their lead to recognize the importance of airborne transmission and mitigating airborne transmission. Uh, Ashray, like Riva in Europe and others, uh, actually invoked the precautionary principle with respect to airborne risk in March or April of, of 2020. So you know, I'm, I'm very uh, uh, pleased that that we were providing the right guidance from the beginning. Uh, I think obviously the, the fact that we have produced a body of guidance that's widely referenced and, and uh, relatively simple is another important thing And finally communication. Um, I think this has been a really a, a big moment for building science and for organizations that, uh, work on indoor air quality uh, like ASHRAE and, and uh, the recognition of the importance of what we do has never been greater. And that's one of the things that I think the, the task force has
1: helped to do. Great, Marwa, would you like to add to that?
3: Yeah, so the first response, I cannot stress this enough. I don't know if you guys remember, but at the beginning of the pandemic, we had the, the questions, should we leave our HVAC system on? Should we uh, replace our filters, maintain them? and and uh, I remember the Ashley Epidemic Task Force was so fast to provide, basically, positions or statements or help answer all of these questions. And the other thing I would say, and I think it will, uh, you know, outlast this pandemic, is that during the Ashley Epidemic Task Force uh, work, there was, uh, you know, a big concatenating of all the different standards and guidelines and best practices into simple documents. Uh, to help basically you know uh, practitioners consumers the, the public in, in in general and not only that they went above i think the standards so above the minimum standards uh and in including infectious aerosols and in the discussion so i think a lot of the work from the ashr epidemic uh, task force will stay after the pandemic and will help inform a lot of um, our updates of our standards
2: great yeah i should follow up on that that uh you know we would there's maybe sometimes here the task force uh, spoken of in the in the past tense um actually the the guidance is pretty well built out and we're not really updating that very much but uh, the rest of this ashray society year, this next six months our uh, goal uh, following on marwa's comments is really to uh, set a path for the future what what do we do with what we've learned to improve standards and, and guidance and to merge uh, infection control with the uh, what we hope will be a revolution in indoor air quality generally to promote wellness.
0: I mean, this is a, this is a very unique uh, point in time for all of us, right, in the industry, because we've, I, we've never uh, had this keen awareness of, about indoor environments in our lifetimes right and i mean i don't think there's ever at least that much of a focus globally Mm -hmm. um and many times i've brought this up over the last years my concern is is that we have this opportunity to drive to drive these messages forward right now in this unique time right With, with with the the awareness but what things do we need to do to make that happen? You know, because again, pe- people's memory seems to be short on everything. You know, as, as this thing starts to wane a little bit and we're not nearly there, but as it does, I mean, I think people are going to, you know, they'll get laissez fair about it. How do, how do we stop that from happening and use this this horrible event as or, or horrible series of events as an opportunity to actually push everything forward, and make everything better? I, I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> I'm just well, it,
2: No, you're, you're right. I've, we've seen... Uh emergencies be quickly forgotten and we don't do anything um, a number of times. We were very interested in making buildings uh, safe from bioterrorism 15, 20 years ago. And if we'd done that, we would have done a lot of the things that we're recommending now, but everyone forgot about it. Um, I think mainly it's it's keeping uh, the commitment going to actually do something, which means setting up uh structures that will make sure that the long-range plan is implemented so we, we've gotten indoor environmental quality and and resilience into the ashray strategic plan we're working on setting up a uh, a way of uh, making sure that when we push uh, the work that ashray is doing out to technical committees that have other things on their their plate that uh, someone will be making sure that that work keeps going forward, and we have to keep communicating out, outwardly, too. I think advocacy is going to be very big here because it's going to take the kind of money that only governments can, can make available to uh, do some of the research that's necessary and to change policies and to implement perhaps national standards that uh, will help us to achieve these goals.
0: I mean, there's a lot of talk about this paradigm shift, right? But, you know, what is this? what is the paradigm shift right now? Has it actually occurred?
1: I'm going I'm to start uh, with uh, Marwan on, on no. that because uh, I think that, that Bill has put in the chat where the the, the, uh, the paper is that he he participated in, and uh, perhaps Marwan, you could give us a little bit of an idea of what your thoughts are on the paradigm shift, and then Bill, I think you can follow up with the uh, what you have in that report.
3: Yeah. So. I definitely think like, you know, a great awakening has occurred and, and we all feel it. We feel it from, you know, uh, I don't know, our neighbors, where our kids go to school, from everything's happening around us. So I think a great awakening has, has occurred definitely. And throughout this pandemic, I, um, I, as well as many other people, saw few revelations. So the, the first one I would say that, you know, people understood that the buildings they occupy are not healthy. I think this was a little bit, you know, kind of a surprise. And they're not healthy because of two things. One is because our standards, the minimum standards became maximum standards and were not uh, established to address infectious aerosols. And you kind of see that in, uh, I'm a member of a standard ventilation for acceptable indoor air quality. You kind of see that in the ventilation rates. You kind of, it's very easy to see it if you compare the ventilation rate for offices that was required for gym or what's required for nail salon, you kind of directly see that, yeah, it's it's not meant to address actually, uh, you know, infectious aerosols. And um, very clearly it's stated under the table, the ventilation rate are not meant to uh, address infectious aerosols. So first, you know, even our minimum standards do not address what we're going uh, through today. And not only that, we know that uh, even uh, the very well-designed buildings they're not well operated. So it can be not healthy because our minim, minimum standards do not address the problem. And also because we're not uh, operating uh, basically per what we should operate, even to the minimum. Um, the other thing is that uh, kind of also another revelation, although it's a novel virus, but we don't need novel technologies necessarily because we have a lot of proven technologies. Some of them we have already in our buildings, like filters, ventilation. Uh, UV, UVGI, for example, upper room GUV. So already the solutions uh, exist. Yes, it requires cost investment, but as we all know, these cost investment um, can be justified by the greater benefit to the society and not putting, you know, you have a disease, but also you have, you know, all the, all the benefits that outweigh COVID, for example, allergy, um, uh, you know, other respiratory diseases, other examples is you know productivity. Everyone's talking about it now. Uh, employee retention, wellness, etc. So the other revelation is yes, like you can do the investment today, and it will actually uh, you know outweigh uh, the, the 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 pandemic basically. Okay. The other revelation is that you know you can do these strategies, but not at the expense of energy. So and I think mm-hmm. the core recommendation did a very good job in January 2021 to say it's okay for you to consider exposure reduction and energy and cost and and, and comfort so all of this revelation i think we need to benefit from it to make this indoor revolution that uh, bill was talking about by basically you know updating the the standards doing advocacy and my job today is more in the operation of existing buildings i think there is a lot of work to do in how we operate our buildings
0: but, I mean, it is, it is key, though, that we also, you know, we, we, we do include the indoor environments and energy and, and you know, and equally weigh these considerations. I mean, because there's, there, that pendulum has swung back and forth several times in the past several decades. And it's, you can't have one or the other or one shouldn't supersede the other. We, we need everything, right? Would you agree?
3: I definitely agree because it can be a vicious cycle. So if you spend so much energy to fix an indoor air quality problem and then you want to ventilate your building, you bring pollution inside. So I call it the vicious cycle. So there is ways, you know, to, to, to do it, you know, in, in incorporating all of these strategies we talked about. Great,
1: great. So... Um... Bill, you were a part of this paper that you listed in in chat as uh, you know recently published in twenty twenty one a paradigm shift to Com- combat indoor respiratory infection and of course I recognize a lot of the names on there they're, they're some of the most uh, famous names in, in our field so tell us a little bit about this paper and how it uh, came about and and what does it actually uh, conclude?
2: Sure. Well, you know this is uh, one of the the now many. Uh, articles that have been written by the, the so-called Group of 36, which is a bunch of uh, uh, experts in various fields that Lydia Morawski convened uh, way back in, in uh, I think it was March or April of 2020, to try to talk to WHO about airborne transmission. I think that was really initially the the, the goal that we had. And um, the, the direct communication route didn't, uh, uh, have a lot of uh, effect and uh the group had very good chemistry and just started writing a lot of papers there was uh, a paper uh titled something like how can uh, airborne transmission uh, indoors be controlled that's now been cited something like 600 times in the last year and a half so um over time we went uh, maybe from more scientific to someone more policy Focus kinds of writings. And, and that's what this article in Science is. And uh, it, it's saying that the, the, there ought to be a different approach taken to uh, prevention of, of infections indoors, that, that we tolerate uh, a burden of disease from airborne transmission uh, that we wouldn't accept, say, from sanitation or from uh, water treatment and so it tries to to make the connection that that we're uh, simply accepting uh horrible consequences that we we don't need to and, and then goes on to describe some of the things that would be not need to be done to change the paradigm from my point of view it goes back to something that mara was talking about which is the first thing you have to do is change your definition of what's acceptable once you've done that the rest of it tends to follow and i i say when I give talks about this, that our current uh, definition of acceptable indoor air is focuses on safety and satisfaction, not uh, uh, not productivity or, or well-being in the sense that we are, are thinking about them today. So if we change the definition, then we can start to apply the technologies that we have to, to solve it. And I think as Mara already outlined, we don't need new technology to do better. We just need to use what we already have differently. Of course, this has also brought to light how much we um, don't know about control of of infection risk and other aspects of indoor air quality because it hasn't been a priority for so long. So one of the things that needs to happen is to stimulate the investment and research that will help us to to be able to uh, attain this objective.
0: I mean certainly areas like uh, productivity and well-being are a little bit harder to quantify and measure right uh, those are trickier <laughs> studies to come up with and be able to have a direct correlation right i know there's there's yeah, been studies although, the harvard study and some of the things that have.
2: although we've been doing it for decades you know i i, I really like uh, uh, joe allen and john mccumber's book it, it's making a case remaking a case that was being made by bill fisk more than 20 years ago and you know, one of the, the things that really made me understand that I was on the right track focusing my career on IAQ was going to um, one of the climate uh, conferences. It was the one in Helsinki, I think, in 2007. And and Bill Fisk and uh, Oli Seppen and presented a, a paper there on uh, uh, productivity and and health as influenced by indoor air quality. I thought this, this is really, uh, something that everybody should know about and it's important and that's been one of the big motivations for me ever since is to 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 actually realize those gains that um, have been identified as feasible if we do a better job of controlling indoor air quality
0: we have a couple of other questions that have popped up in the chat, so uh, they're not necessarily in order, but I'm going to go with them anyway. <laughs> uh, so Paul asked, uh, "What was what is the uh, state of the literature regarding the risks and potential harms of PCO technology?" Um, it's a little bit loaded question. But... Yeah,
2: I mean, I can say a little bit about that because I actually had a, a colleague who uh, worked for one of the major companies that was trying to uh, develop and commercialize it um, uh, when maybe in the nineteen 19- 90s um, pco has been used a couple of ways one is, is is really kind of as a self-contained air cleaner where the action goes on in the cleaner and you generate reactive species and they they do their their work there but similar technologies are now being used to produce reactive species that are actually put into room air uh, state of the technology uh, there was a good review paper written by some of the people who had been doing the development in those days and they cited two things as being Uh, barriers to use of PCO for IAQ control. Uh, One was not really understanding what the byproducts were of of incomplete uh, decomposition of VOC. So they were concerned about hazardous uh, byproducts. Uh, And the other thing was at the time, at least the um, uh, catalyst, the, the titanium dioxide catalyst and the tendency of it to become contaminated and for those devices to lose their effectiveness. They've got uh, um, one of the key issues with all reactive species air cleaners now, which is what exactly are they doing to air quality uh, unintentionally, and and also a a practical consideration that uh, the life of the the technology wasn't as good as they had hoped it would be. Uh,
1: Mara, you got anything to add to that at this point? Hang on. Oh, we lose her?
0: Yeah, I m- muted her again. I got gotcha. you. There you
3: go. I echo I echo what Bill said. And also there is a very nice review paper uh, recently published by Dr. Delphine Farmer and Dr. Doug Collins. Uh, it's called Unintended Consequences of, uh, of, of Air Cleaners. It's only, I think, three pages, but it goes over the, uh, the, the, the latest uh, research we have in terms of um, uh, the consequences of of using uh, reactive air cleaners, also it goes with uh, you know other basic technologies. So just want to put it out there. It's a great review paper.
1: I, if you could, uh, if you could, uh, when you have a chance, send us uh, a, the link to that paper. We'll uh, put that up on the um, on the website and then in in, in in other locations as well. So if you could do that, I'd appreciate it.
0: Sure. So we have another fairly long question. It's going to take more than one screen to show it, but we'll, we'll start here. So the comment is, I'd love to hear your thoughts on improving IAQ standards, both from a guiding philosophy, i.e. moving from acceptable to some kind of infection control. And in practical requirements, do we increase uh, minimum rates of, of fil- or filtration? And by how much, uh, given the uncertainties and a on a timescale of what we do now-ish and <laughs> not when we're uh, not when we've learned more reduced uncertainties that's a long one
2: that, that is a long question um well I, I i think clearly filter standards can be upgraded from where they are merv MIR, 8 is is not doing much to control particles that have health effects and, and so i think the the um uh, uh, low-hanging fruit is is raising basic particulate filtration to a level that's effective uh beyond that i i think the the answer has got to be in part air cleaners because of the energy impact of, of ventilation we can only do so much to mitigate the, um, the impact of ever increasing outdoor air um, and, and to be able to use air cleaners effectively, we need standards and certification programs. That's already been set in motion by several organizations. ASHRAE is working on method of test standards that could be used in certifications for air cleaners, and AHRI, the, the big uh, uh, Manufacturers Trade Association that certifies a lot of products, is also looking at the same issue. So that that's kind of the way I see it going in the, the short term. And I think that some national leadership would be helpful in uh, in, in different countries, just taking the, the US as an example, we have a national code basis energy efficiency standard uh, ASHRAE 90.1 that over 25 or 30 years <clears throat> reduced the minimum acceptable energy consumption of a building by uh, by over 50 percent. We have no national consensus air quality standards. So just getting one, even if it was 62.1 today would be a pretty good start.
1: Yeah. And that, that brings up a point that, uh, as was mentioned a couple of times, the the 62.1 is for, uh, ventilation for acceptable indoor air quality. Acceptable is, is, is the key word there though, isn't it? Uh, it, it may not necessarily be good for all, and it's certainly not necessarily, you know, putting it forward as a, uh, as a maximum standard, there are other ways we can we can maximize indoor air quality uh, protection if we if we increase the ventilation. So, I'll put that out to to you um, both uh, of our guests. So I'll start with you, Mara. What, what's your thoughts? You're a member, as I am I, and as Bill of 62.1. W- what should we be doing differently, do you think? Uh,
3: so, also you are a member of the guideline 42P, which is yes, we are. Yeah, the. <laughs> beyond the, the minimums in 62.1. So there is- Why don't you,
1: a, why don't you talk a little bit about that? I, because uh, it's self-serving, I say something, but if you're, you're a member of the team, go ahead and say something about it.
3: <laughs> yeah. So there are, uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to um, uh, to improve um, uh, to improve uh, the, the standard from uh, indoor air quality. So to up the bar from, from the minimum. There is, you know, the, the ventilation rates, we're talking about, you know, the, the ventilation rate when it comes to uh, the rate per person, the rate per area for different uh, space types. There is the fact that we don't require high efficiency filtration uh, in our systems. Um, and, and the fact that a lot of our systems do not require even filtration. If, if they don't do the humidification, they don't have to filter, for example, return air. Um, there's also like a... Uh, will be a newly published uh, addendum, which is the performance-based procedure, but it doesn't go into infectious aerosols per se. So, in general, we can bring infectious aerosols inside, inside the standard. What, what I learned is that, you know, the standard only covers uh, what we think it's typical. So, usual sources, typical events. So, even we don't cover cover fires, for example. That's like in a different uh, guideline, sort of, sort of. So one way to make the standard uh, more reflect the reality is is, is to have it, uh, you know, recognize that, for example, fires are happening seasonally; that not one time of event, infectious aerosols are, are a reality, and and add, um, you know, what we know today inside inside the standard. And guideline 42P started really long time ago, like maybe seven <laughs> years. I I don't, I don't remember. But it aimed to up the minimum from the from the standard. So it takes each section from the standard and try to say, maybe we can do better, uh, and here's our best practices, and here how we can go be beyond the beyond the, the minimums. Um, and don't correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't um, address in, in a large scale infectious aerosols, right? Because of the right.
2: right, yeah, it started a long long time before the, the pandemic came along.
1: Yeah. Yes, it did. And, and and it is out for, well, well after t- uh, the meeting this uh, next week, it should be out for public review, uh, a second public review. So if you're interested in, in finding out more about enhanced indoor air quality and what ASHRAE is up to, uh, look for the public review and, and offer your comments. So, Bill, you have yeah. something to add to that at this point? Yeah, well, I, I
2: think Marwa uh, reminded me. I, I do think it's important to... Uh, uh, have our standards not just be for normal operation, and uh, that, that uh, we should be trying to uh, put some provisions into standards like 62.1 um, to address uh, operation during uh, an infectious disease outbreak or during a wildfire if you're in a region that uh, is affected by them. Because one of the things we found during COVID is that the, the buildings we've been building are pretty hard to upgrade to provide the level of protection we'd like them to have. And then obviously if if there was some planning that went into that, some foresight we made some preparations that weren't too expensive in terms of the first cost of the system so that it could operate differently when necessary, uh, we would be ready to go next time. And it wouldn't take us you know, we, we wouldn't have built buildings that are still trying to figure out what modifications are, are going to be implemented 3 years into a pandemic.
1: Right. Yeah, that should have been something that, that we should have been able to implement in a regularly you know very quick basis but unfortunately it hasn't occurred that yeah. way. Hey Bob. De- yeah, a question. Yeah, that
0: was definitely problematic. We, we, hopefully, well, and that's that was to my point earlier is, you know, what can we do to ensure that we take this experience and learn from it <laughs> collectively globally? You know, because this obviously is a global issue. This is not the last global pandemic that we will probably even see in our lifetimes. So how, how do we deal with that? question anyway we have a couple more questions from the audience uh one's actually a comment but I'll, we'll go with that uh terry it's not terry i hope terry wrote this i hope you're right that changing the definition from acceptable uh indoor air to healthy indoor air keep in mind that in 1994 osha issued the draft iaq regulations i remember those uh they were excellent at the time but they never really went into uh uh final uh, yeah because because it was a tons of opposition, you know, it was, it was widespread opposition. So how, how do we ensure that any measures that we try to do now won't, won't face the same opposition from private interest groups?
2: Well, I think we have to recognize that that any measures we recommend now will face opposition from uh, private interest groups and uh, be ready to to engage and to stay engaged. I mean, this is what the whole standards process is about, is, is all of these competing interests trying to come to a... A consensus nobody's happy at the end but if you if you engage and, and put the effort into making a good case for why changes should be made then some of them will happen but if you just sit back and say you know it's obvious then you're going to lose and that's that's what ha- has happened um many times so um to me at the, at the policy and standard le- standards level the big part of this is making the economic case extremely clearly we, we can't do that Uh, quite as well as we'd like to now. But I I think that uh, from the point of view of influencing legislation and national standards, when you show what this does to uh, the economic conditions in a country to have less illness and to have higher productivity, um, it becomes a no-brainer at that point if if you can uh, get that analysis to be Accepted. Allen et all have done it. Fisk did it. Um, those of us who who want this to happen need to keep making that case to uh, to those who are in a position to influence what happens.
0: That's challenging though, because we have a hard time getting people to accept climate change issues too. So uh, it's not like you know science is always uh, you know welcomed with open arms. Uh, We have a couple other ones. I'll just get up here. Uh, Your suggestions on how to use an HVAC system and how to handle during the pandemic got cut off. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, We're going to take that one just move it right on through. Um, uh, When uh, will the ASHRAE update guidelines for the application of upper air, upper room, ultraviolet germicidal uh, devices to control the transmission of airborne pathogens be published?
2: Um, I'm, I'm wondering what exactly is, is meant by that. There are two chapters in the ASHRAE handbook now that, uh, that deal with um, germicidal UV, um, and there are standards on UV systems. So, you know, I think an area that's developing is upper room standards and that is a standards process so it's taking a while but uh, both ASHRAE and and uh, IES and I think I UVA as well are all working in that arena so I, I don't uh, have a date to to uh, give you as to, to when there will be updated guidelines but there's work ongoing to uh, improve the um, uh, guidance for application of, of GUV
1: Great, thank you. Um, We're getting down to the last few minutes. I have a a few more questions that are a little bit off, but I think are good uh, to to talk about. And start with you Marwa and talk about, I want you to tell us a little bit about your work with uh, design partners and what kind of projects are you working on?
3: Uh, Sure. Yeah. So uh, we're focusing on performance based approaches, one of my favorite words to say, uh, which it means basically uh, rather than to say, you know, there is one size fits all to try to understand more that the the building itself and the goals for for the building itself. (coughs) Uh, I'm focusing all my work on uh, existing buildings. And um, we have this uh, new model that uh, we are uh, doing. Uh, it's called the clean air as a service model, clean air as a service. Uh, what it basically does, it follows the molecule that you are breathing inside and, and where is it going? So some of it's coming from outdoor air, some of it is being recirculated. Uh, and you have the choke points, which are the filters and then the coils, and then the fan goes back into, 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 the, into the basically the, the room. Uh, so part of this is doing a lot of testing to answer some uh, basic questions. Uh, you know, what um, I did this filter design and when do I need to change my filters? What is the intersection between uh, how long the filter can stay versus how much energy is going to cost me uh, versus the integrity of the, of, the, of the filter? Same thing for, um, for, the, for the cooling and the heating coil. When do I need to clean my coils? What do I need to do? Uh, and we're doing this as a, as a basically research with collaboration with a large portfolio managers to create indoor air quality programs for them. And it's very exciting because, for example, if you look at our standard today, it says visually inspect your coils. But it turned out after taking so many different biological so bacteria and fungi sampling just visually looking at your coils will not tell you when to need to clean your coils and there was you know a few papers back um, mainly by Dr. Jeffrey Siegel to say you know uh, you know there are medically relevant for example bacteria uh, and and fungi on your coils that you have to take attention to so my work is focused on that now is to figure out the basic of indoor air quality programs and uh, mainly to do uh, to answer this indoor air quality operation program. So the building that are, the people that are operating our buildings, the facility engineer, the chief building engineer, they can understand the indoor air quality intention of this system and can able to, uh, you know, answer the basic question and able to operate even if there's something wrong going on. So they will understand why they're doing what they're doing in terms of their, you know, heating, ventilation, air conditioning system.
0: One of the things that, you know, I, I just have to jump in here, Marwa, on this because the coils are just a, a bone of contention for me. I guess I see, uh, I, I get involved a lot as an IQ consultant being out and doing HVAC, HVAC hygiene. And I, it, it amazes me that we're still designing mechanical equipment that, that puts these massive deep coils puts you know and then stacks them together puts a cooling and a heating coil you know stacks them within several inches of each other where it's impossible to service them nobody could ever without literally pulling the coil out of a big hundred ton unit you couldn't really clean it properly you know yeah. and why are we still building these things I, I get it in the 60s and 70s we did that but how, how in 2020 do we have systems coming off the shelf like that
3: yeah, I think the you know intersection or gaining area you know for the for the surface transfer, but there are new uh, ways to do this. For example, using enzymes or, or probiotics, and that can basically work into into, into your system. The, the funny thing is that you know when you ask someone, why do you have this uh, indoor air quality operation program, they will tell you, I followed the standard. The standards say clean as needed or visually inspect. So, kind of see the big divide between you know what actually the research say? To have amazing research what The standards say, and what do we have in practice? And I vow to myself through my work here is you know, do uh, you know, research based, so intention to do research so we can basically get back to the standard. So it will be like a feedback loop, maybe answer this one question standard 180 when do you need to clean your coils? So we have this, uh, you know, I think a lot of measurements. I'm doing a lot of measurements, it's very exciting, taking some fun stuff. Like, for example, infrared images on on the coils, so heating and and the cooling coils. So sometimes the coils are really dirty. You just want to (laughs) run. Sometimes they are visually clean, but the data show that they're actually dirty because you don't see this thin biofilm. So there's a lot that we need to understand in terms of really, you know, when you implement a solution, what actually you're getting from indoor quality or or health perspective. Excellent.
1: So, Bill, um, I want to follow up with uh, what uh, research and papers are you working on currently? What can you tell us about some of the uh, activities that you've been doing with um, research?
2: Sure. Uh, well, keeping really really busy, you know, still with uh, the G thirty six group, where we're almost through all the hoops to get a paper published on the history of the misunderstanding of uh, airborne disease transmission. Uh, but it closer to home, the actual research that I'm doing. Uh, we've been doing measurements of coronavirus susceptibility to, uh, to UVC. We've, we've looked at both uh, NL63, which causes uh, cold-like symptoms, and, and SARS-CoV-2, uh, and we're um, hoping to publish something on that shortly, uh, starting some work on the, the fundamental mechanism of, of UV disinfection, looking at the genomes of uh, of, uh various microorganisms, and I've also been doing some more practical applied work on upper room GUV systems, the uh, uh, impact of air distribution design on, on their performance. That so far has is, is mainly been CFD modeling, but we'd like to extend it into uh, some experimental work. And the other thing is um, air cleaners and uh, in room performance. Marwa said she was doing something on that. I've actually got a contract with a uh, a manufacturer that produces a uh, an air cleaner that uh, emits reactive species. I kind of felt that if we were going to criticize them and say there wasn't enough peer-reviewed literature on it, then we ought to be studying them. So I've got some work in in progress to try to model a uh, an ROS uh, producing air cleaner and and to see how that works and compares with other types of uh, infection control, UV and HEPA filters and others so a lot of lot of things going on
1: yeah definitely sounds like it uh so that's uh that's our hour and uh i'm going to turn it back over to to bob to close us out but thank you to our two guests i appreciate it and again thank you to ashray and to uh uh to som in terms of uh the sponsorship for this so back to you bob
0: Okay. Well, hey, thanks again. I really appreciate, uh, Bill and Marwa's time. That was great. That was a great talk. I wish we had more time. It always goes so fast. Um, but we'll have you on again, again, uh, again, 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 (laughs) sometime, whatever. Wow. I spent too much time in the ISIAC conference this week online. So it's, my brain's kind of, you know, totally overabsorbed. Um, so uh again reminding this uh this program uh, indoor environment show is a joint collaboration between isiac the international society of indoor air quality and climate and the indoor environmental quality global alliance ieqga Um, they got together with healthy indoors to help get this show out there and available to the public so thanks very much the organizations um as always uh we'll be back I believe in February, because we're, yeah. we're, we're working on the 2022 schedule right now. Um, so uh, stay tuned. Uh, again, you'll be able to watch the replays of this show and any of our previous uh, episodes of the Indoor Indoor Environment Show on the Healthy Indoors uh, Global Community. That's at global.healthyindoors.com, and it's free and uh, all available. So thanks to everyone, and we'll see you again soon.
2: Thanks. Glad to be with you.